Hello, and welcome to Local Trust's Big Local Podcast. My name is Hazel Sheffield, and I recently wrote an essay, Building Wealth, about how communities are starting to reshape their local economies from the ground up. My essay is available as a mobile-friendly digital download at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local. Local Trust asked me to introduce these themes at a roundtable event chaired by Matt Leach. And here is my presentation about the essay. Welcome to another of what's a growing series of big local podcasts. Over the last six months or so, we've brought together an amazing array of people to talk about some really, really fantastic essays. Last month, Jess chaired a conversation about the way in which creativity, the arts and heritage were really making a difference in big local areas. Before that, we've talked about the importance of local infrastructure. Um, At the very start of the series, we had Julian Dobson, didn't we, back in February, talking about the critical role of community anchor organisations in turning places around. Over the last six months, Hazel Sheffield has been travelling between big local areas, visiting places as diverse as Hartlepool and Morecambe meeting fantastic people with great stories to tell and reflecting on what the experience of Big Local tells her about the way in which communities are starting to address the failure of local economies. I'm going to hand over now to Hazel and I really, really look forward to your introduction to what's going to be a really exciting conversation. Hello everyone. I'd been on the road in the UK for about 18 months documenting local economies emerging in the aftermath of austerity and Brexit. Um, I was interviewing people, making short films and making a map of where some of the most exciting new ideas were emerging. I actually met Matt on these travels um, in Scotland and he told me about Big Local. For many of the people I'd met and reported with, money was the biggest barrier to getting stuff done. And the idea that someone was giving these communities a million pounds and letting them decide what to do with it seemed bonkers and brilliant. Surely by giving communities cash, they would be able to fix everything in the ways they wanted. The reality, of course, was much more complicated. And after I agreed to do the essay, the first big local area I visited was Morecambe in March and I found a community in the middle of dealing with a crisis that had been brought on by cuts. An ITV newsreel broadcast last winter, nearly a year ago now, showed working mums relying on food banks to feed their children, teachers at local primary schools washing school uniforms and charging parents' mobile phones, and doctors who had seen the re-emergence of cases of rickets and other diseases usually found in developing countries. That's not the whole story, Morecambe. There's lots of amazing stuff going on there among the community, but it quickly becomes apparent when you're confronted with that. It's not really appropriate to talk about growth. The metrics that I was going out with weren't able to describe the reality that I found. Inclusive growth implied that the system was working in some way. Something was growing when actually the opposite was true. Some economists are starting to describe this reality. Uh, Maybe some of you read David Pilling's excellent book, The Gross Delusion, which is about the limitations of GDP, or Thomas Piketty um, and his work on on wealth inequality, which helps explain why voters who felt excluded from the economy are seeking radical alternatives like Brexit. I also visited a place called Surrey in Essex, where 72% of people voted for Brexit. And Neil Woodbridge, who runs a social enterprise for people with disabilities there, told me that people voted for Brexit in Thurrock because they felt like the government had forgotten about them. 
He said it wasn't anything to do with racism. It was about you lot in London with your high rents and your stupid mortgages. You've forgotten about us white working class boys. Elsewhere, people also told me they felt sick of being told that if they work a bit harder or a bit longer, they'll be able to get ahead. In Hartlepool, there are 10 people to every six jobs. Sasha Bedding, the chief executive of a charity in, in the Dyke House area I visited, told me that in Hartlepool, the very idea of growth is a fantasy. So this calls for new ideas. Not far from Morecambe in Preston, some of those new ideas have started to surface. In April 2017, I wrote a piece for The Guardian about Preston Council, which had been trying a new way to keep money circulating in the local economy. Preston councillor Matthew Brown, who kindly wrote the foreword to the essay, worked with the Centre for Local Economic Strategies to identify where money was leaking into the coffers of multinational suppliers. Then the council took steps to plug the leaks by switching procurement contracts to local businesses. The story of the Preston model has been picked up by the Labour Party, which now has a community wealth building unit and reported on across the press as a potential solution to the problems of globalisation. But actually, very little work has been done in the UK on how these ideas can work in smaller towns and rural areas, where there are fewer anchors with spending power like police stations, council buildings, universities and hospitals. These places need a, a way to do community wealth building that doesn't rely on big anchors and budgets. In the US, a non-profit called the Democracy Collaborative has been working on this idea. They have found that smaller communities can start to create chains of value by turning income, such as big local funding, into assets. The big local areas I visited were already doing this. At the Exchange, a creative centre in Morecambe, two young women called Becky and Jo had been crowdfunding to buy empty buildings and turn them into workspaces for artists and entrepreneurs. In Hartlepool, Sasha Bedding had been looking to match the big local money with other streams of funding to buy houses to provide stable rent for members of the community. And in Thurrock, in Essex, Andy Blakey and the Grays Riverside Partnership have invested in the Lightship Cafe, which trains young people struggling with mental health to work in the kitchen. But assets don't always need to be physical buildings. They can be people like Connor Hammond, a young grime artist. He was supported by Grays Riverside to open a recording studio in Essex that has provided a safe space for young people involved in gangs. Or Callum Hills, the young man on the front of the essay. Big Local is supporting him as he trains as a youth worker in Hartpool. This is the wealth in the title of my essay. Wealth comes from not having money, but from the ownership of the means to make money or ownership of assets that pay returns in the long term. In 2017, Oxfam found that 82% of wealth generated across the world went to the richest 1% of the global population. Big Local is a rare opportunity for people excluded from this wealth to start to create their own. We cannot bury our heads in the sand and believe that economic growth for most people works. Brexit is the biggest warning of the consequences when we do. But for community wealth building and other alternatives to take root, communities need to have access to fresh ideas and frameworks through training and sharing knowledge. They need to have the funding and the support to start to invest where it counts. Big Local is only the beginning. So that was me introducing my essay. Listening to all of this were Rosie Carter of the community politics advocacy group Hope Not Hate, Matt Buckham of Bromford, a large social housing landlord, Joe Earl of the think tank Economy, 
which seeks to make economics more accessible and easy to understand, Becca Antink of the Public Services and Communities Department of the Royal Society of the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, also known as the RSA. Also listening was Jess Prendergast of community project organisation Onion Collective in Watchit, West Somerset, and Dan Spencer, chair of the West End Million Big Local in Morecambe. Here's the conversation we had, chaired by Matt Leach of Big Local. So Dan, Dan's been chair of West End Millions Big Local since January. And one of the really interesting aspects of what you've been starting to try to do in Morecambe is local effort to address some of those really wicked issues, the difficult issues that affect people in the West End of Morecambe. And a lot of those come down to the success of the local economy, don't they? Morecambe is geographically isolated. We have a very seasonal economy as a coastal community and a lot of our hotels either are remnants from when we were big on in the tourism age or they've been left after the nuclear power stations were built and then all the people who built them left. But you're turning yourself round by harnessing those available resources, the empty buildings, the places no one wants to go. The, actually, the Alhambra Ballroom, which is, is, is a phenomenal resource to have in any community, isn't it? You'll have to tell us a little bit about its story. You're absolutely right. We have a lot of vacant units. We've also got a lot of derelict buildings and houses that haven't been maintained. And the Alhambra is where Laurence Olivier was filmed in The Entertainer. It has a floor that is a nightclub. December last year, it was host to 300 people in the community who responded to coverage of food poverty in Morecambe. Not having these spaces being occupied provided the opportunity for the community to utilise the spaces and also think more laterally about how we use them. So the Alhambra has recently been doing more in terms of hosting events and because it's led by trustees and volunteers, all of the money that's generated goes on restoring the building. We might not be able to do it at the rate a developer might do it, but there is inherent wealth in the skills that are developed by the people who are using it the sense of ownership that the community has over the building and everybody contributing a little bit in the building. Jess, when we were speaking earlier, you said that Watch It, which is the other end of the country, is in the deep southwest, she sounded almost exactly like Morecambe. And you've decided to take that in hand, haven't you? You're trying to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by how much the description of Morecambe is exactly like the description of Watch It and West Somerset. So it's very isolated. Its only economy still is tourism. People in West Somerset have the lowest wages in the country. So the average household salary where I live is £16,000. Not person, actual household salary. We have crushingly low social mobility and we've recently lost our major industry. So it's a place that's very similar to Morecambe. So we're trying to do something about it from the community uh, bottom up in areas from social action to heritage to arts to youth services and some quite substantial regeneration projects. Joe, why is it important that we crack the issue of economic underperformance? Economists definitely don't have the answers to this but at the same time large parts of the public don't feel they can have play a role in conversations about the economy so you know, we've done surveys which, which show that uh, only 7% of people from um, lower social economic groups feel 
like economics is discussed in a way that's accessible and relevant to them. And and when you ask them, people say, oh, I don't, I don't talk about economics, but of course they do every day. They talk about their schools and, and their jobs and their communities, but it's it's a different language. And so the world of policy and the world of of trying to solve these problems is a different one to the one that most people exist in. And until we kind of bring those two worlds together, we're gonna be stuck in a cycle of most people not being able to have a say in that. At the moment, we have a generic solution to local economic development. So, you know, inward investment, high tech, physical infrastructure, skills, but lots of that involves kind of identifying a place as having a deficit and having failed and we need to bring things in from the outside and it's not about building on what's there and I think that's the way it would start and so I think the solution goes hand in hand with more people being part of the conversation. Rosie, I hope not hate you've been talking a lot about the importance of getting economics right recently haven't you? I've just finished a piece of work looking at the kind of drivers of hate and fear um, and what we found is that economics is a huge part of this and it's actually where people don't have a sense of control over their lives, where people have been excluded, um, where the pace of change has kind of overwhelmed places, the nature of work has changed, people are unhappy in their lives, that's really where the far right are able to take hold and populist narratives really resonate with people. So kind of narratives about Islam taking over or about kind of um, a decline of English or British identity they kind of hold most where people do feel a sense of declining identity, a declining sense of self and a changing kind of nature of the, the world around them that hasn't included them. So, I mean, I think just listening to kind of what people around the table are talking about, what Big Local's been doing is, is actually really amazing because it is what gives people hope. And I think the quote from the essay as well about kind of hope in concrete form is not always spoken about in that way. I mean, quite often we talk about kind of attitudes and values and changing the way that people think about things in this kind of very abstract way but actually the kind of concrete effects in people's lives are hugely important in that as well. Hazel did you recognise the interplay between politics and economics? Definitely I think the biggest factor encountering that is something we've perhaps touched on already and that's ownership whether that's having ownership of an asset or worker-owned businesses where people feel they have more of a say so in Essex, especially where there is no shortage of employment, the young people I met who had been working in Amazon fulfillment centres, essentially in the service of robots, felt angry and disengaged with the economy. You know, Thorek voted to leave the European Union by 72% uh, of people voted to leave the European Union there, um, which goes some way to showing how this distrust of your immediate economic situation can lead to the erosion of democracy and of, of choices. And I think the way that you get that back is not by indulging in these traditional narratives about economic growth, getting, you know, the Hinkley Point C power stations in, all the Amazon fulfillment centres where the money is leaking out, but thinking about ways that you can create employment or ownership of assets where the people who live in a place are then able to reap the benefits of that. Jess? One of the things we've been looking at um, where, so, so in West Somerset, we had a quite important heavy duty papermaking industry, which has sustained the jobs in our town for a quarter of a millennium until it closed down because of global economic forces. And what we've tried to do is just think about what that means. And we've kind of ended up back at this conception of the old school kind of industrialist, where they used to build a factory, but then they also built a school and a library and a hospital and all the other things that went with being part of the economy, right? So 
It used to be that the economy was tied really closely to community and place and people living there and all the social stuff that goes with it. And then what happened is from the war onwards is we split that out and we let the economy bit, the growth and productivity, go off into the ether and be totally disconnected from people. And we put the state in to fix all of the leftover social problems. And now the state's retracted, more so in places like West Somerset and Morecambe than anywhere else. There's nothing left. And we're surprised that there's this kind of huge disengagement and, and it's not working. How do you build that back in? How do you build a community industry? And we're looking, again, like right at the assets, looking at what was it about this place that made it work? looking at how you invent a new industry that's relevant for the next 250 years. So forward thinking, not isolation, it's completely forward thinking, part of a big global economy, but tied really, really tightly to people. So that that gap that's opened up just, you know, over the last 50 years, really, it's kind of a blip, can be overcome again. Becca. Yeah, and I think, I think those reflections speak really powerfully to some of the examples of community wealth building that have been put into practice um, in the UK and, and in the States in particular, where, you know, rather than trying to lure in those big global multinational companies who don't have a connection to a place, actually looking at how you develop and grow and support the assets that are already there, whether that's local businesses, whether that's uh, other kinds of infrastructure. It's really important as part of all of this to think about the role of investment and the role of the state. And actually, you know, inclusive growth is not a way of getting around vastly un underfunded public services and a complete lack of an investment where, where it's needed in all of these kinds of places. We need to look at how we value this kind of investment and look at how we value democratic engagement and how we value well-funded, effective public services. And actually, that underpins um, inclusive growth, which in turn feeds back in into all of those things. Matt's been invited. Actually, you're a regular at podcasts here, aren't you? And one of the reasons we've invited Matt Buckingham from Bromford back around the table is because housing associations are a really interesting place as players in communities, because unlike local authorities, arguably, you can't walk away. Your homes are stuck there. Your tenants are there. You've got to engage with them. Are you helping people become part of a new community-owned economy? Intrinsically, our ethos is about inspiring our customers to be their best and part of that is engaging us and them with their local community part of that is through economic development it might be employment it might be volunteering the model is really about looking at what's right about community and what the assets what the positive aspects of that community is but I think as a role both Bromford and the housing association sector we've also got a massive opportunity as, as an asset base and how we reinvest in those communities and how we actually probably take more risk in terms of how we can enable some of these other community anchors to grow. We're looking at how we develop that now. Brexit's a backdrop to all of this, I guess six months away. One thing we do know is that government's planning to take several billion pounds of what was EU structural funding and put it into something called a shared prosperity fund. We don't yet know what the shared prosperity fund will look like, but I guess there is some expectation that it will be used to try and improve local economies. If we set ourselves the challenge over the next half hour of designing the perfect intervention to transform economies, what would it look like? Jess, you've got, I don't know, how much is it? Is it £8 billion, £10 billion, £12 billion? This whole Brexit thing is a really interesting backdrop, isn't it? Because what doesn't seem to be being addressed is the fact that we're going to leave and we're going to still have the exact same problem we had, which is what caused us to leave in the first place. Namely, people feel no sense of control or agency. That isn't actually going to change when we leave Europe because it wasn't actually the cause of the problem. So we're going to still have major sense of disenfranchisement, disengagement, lack of control, no agency, 
people feeling like this country isn't theirs, even though now it is theirs. So this is a major issue that seems to not be being talked about. Like, there's still this kind of general assumption that something will be better, even if it's not the economy, like at least we'll feel in control, but we won't. The politicians controlling that fund, the people making decisions, have got to really seriously take on board the reason for the vote and find ways in which that money is redirected in a way that does give people a sense of power and agency. And I think the thing that's really clear from this conversation is that that's very closely tied to economics. Assuming you get a billion quid in the southwest over four or five years, where should that go to have impact? Is it all about just giving it to the local authorities and telling them to get on with it? No, I wouldn't give it to the local authorities at all. <laughs> uh, I think the problem with local authorities, kind of an aside, but the problem with local authorities is if you've got a good one, great. If you've got a nice progressive local authority, usually the ones with money that aren't too reliant on central government, then great. They tend to do really good work. Where they haven't got anything, where they've suffered huge cuts, they're now trying to claw money back from their communities rather than investing in them. The bad local authorities reinforce inequality. I think that we should be looking at much more neighbourhood community level action. I think if you invest money in the way that Big Local has and in the way that some kind of interesting social action experiments are doing at a really small scale and you ask people to really seriously think about what's best for them and you take the time to listen, you tend to come up with really extraordinary answers. Like people in normal communities are just normal people who are perfectly capable of understanding the complexities and the difficulties and how to weigh things up. It's just that we don't tend to listen to them because we think that they haven't got anything to say. Well, actually, they usually, if you listen hard, have much better solutions and we can apply them. But that's definitely not easy. But if we want to actually change agency and control, then we're going to have to start listening much better than we are now. I guess in, in some of the communities that face big economic challenges, they also face a whole range of other social issues, don't they? And often they're, they're communities which are made up of multiple communities in themselves. How do you have those complex discussions when you've got perhaps incompatibilities in terms of worldview and the separation of, of experience that can be quite hard to get over. Where are examples of that really working out in practice? I've actually just run uh, the National Conversation on Immigration, which is kind of the biggest ever public engagement on immigration. So I've run about 70 conversations in kind of 60 different towns and cities this year on immigration. Actually, when you sit down with people, when you have an open conversation about something, people don't actually end up in this polarised debate that we're all so scared of. But people do have a kind of normal, deliberative discussion um, and tensions are kind of eased out through it. We found that people amalgamate all sorts of issues. So people don't talk about migrants taking their jobs most of the time, but they did in Chesterfield specifically linked to Sports Direct and the conditions of kind of the warehouses there. In other areas, it was Amazon and the kind of working conditions there that drove those concerns. But you don't get there unless you actually start talking to people. Joe, a community coming together and deciding to invest in, say, a new community centre or putting in place services for people with mental health needs is fairly straightforward. It, it's a thing that you're purchasing or a service that you're defining and often one that's quite familiar. When you're asking people to re-engineer local economies, that's quite a big ask, isn't it? We need to change how we talk about economics and the economy. We need to remember that the economy is a recent invention, that we only started talking about the economy and politics after World War II, before 1950. The economy hadn't been mentioned in one winning party manifesto. After that, it became this big thing that we had to feed and we never had the conversation about what's the economy for? We do need new kind of frameworks for thinking about economics post-economy, in a sense. And we can't expect communities to do that on, the, on their own. That has to be 
a collaboration between economists who need to refine their willingness to go out into communities and to have conversations and to adapt their forms of expertise and knowledge about the world. Hazel, how do we get that language right? I don't know if it's a choice. With everything that's happened with Brexit, these things are kind of happening to our economy, especially in the aftermath of austerity and horrendous government cuts. These communities are finding solutions one way or another to things. And actually, the question is, how do you give them the resources to build on that without stifling it? People supposedly voted to take money back from the EU because they thought it was going to fund the NHS. So there's obviously this sense in the country that our public services are criminally under-resourced. And I think if you speak to teachers or doctors, that's probably the case. So some of that money needs to go towards redressing that balance and actually giving these people enough money to do their jobs. And the rest of it should be made available to the communities who are finding ways to put the life back into their local economies. And I think Big Local is just one example of ways that communities are harnessing some resources to create these safe spaces. I mean, the best use of that money would be to let those communities carry on that good work, surely. The question around how you access the money is a really interesting one. Like, language is really challenging, particularly the language on application forms for accessing funding. And a really good idea can come from somebody who's a member of the community, but they don't necessarily know how to fill out forms. When you have a process in place where money is accessed by people who are capable of filling out a form, who are you excluding when you're talking about redistributing money to start inclusive growth and economic development? How do we start to build the case for handing over genuine community control? If you look at NDCs, for example, I mean, that was a, a regeneration programme, New Deal for Communities, which had quite a a significant community element to it, but which by its end have been overwhelmed by government demanding performance returns and a whole load of complications around accounting for the assets that were purchased in the course of the programme. Big Local, on the other hand, gives you money and says, well, go ahead and do what you want. I'm not sure that government necessarily would would absolutely buy into that as a model. We seem to be stretching towards something. Jess, you look like you've got the answer. <laughs> I wish. I don't have the answer for everyone, but what we're trying to do where I am is find a way to collaborate between anchor organisations, the representative kind of democratic bodies, and the business and civil society communities in our town, which takes quite a lot of marshalling people into a room and having quite serious and sometimes difficult conversations. But we've actually found that in not that long, and with a bit of bravery about those conversations, you can make some quite serious headway in getting people to a position where they can agree on what needs to be done. So I don't think it's about trying to find a way to give it to the community or trying to find a way to give it to the local authority, trying to find a way to give it to someone else. In all of that, you're bound to have these power problems. Making all those parts of the whole, all of those players in the economy work together and come together to think about their economy is how you change things not decide who you give it to and which one should make the decisions because because that way everyone or most people are left feeling this complete lack of agency that's the problem in the first place. I guess Dan is probably not you know not breaking any confidences it probably took Morecambe about five years didn't it to work out not just what you wanted to do but how you could effectively work together and there's loads of brilliant stuff happening it took a while to get there and if this had been a short-term government-led funding program that was in and out within three or four years you probably wouldn't have got to where you are where you are now. So there's something about time, and maybe there's also something about support, so a willingness to 
not just provide money, but also provide access to the sorts of support you need. There's something about an investment in people to get them to that. None of that's that hard. Like That's all the stuff that we do as a society all the time. It's what we do with our children. It's what businesses do all over the place when they're trying to be innovative or entrepreneurial. None of this stuff is like, wow, what an extraordinary idea. We should go and talk to people, listen to them and get them to come up with ideas. Like That's just kind of basic being human and having social interactions in society. And I just think we need to be a bit braver about that, a bit more confident about that, a bit more believing in people. And if we do that and put some you know, money and investment in trying to find them and support them, then of course, of course people can do this everywhere. And people are doing it everywhere. So I play football and the, the people who run my football teams put, are so organised and they put so much of their life into it and they're so effective at organising diverse groups of people to regularly be there on time, week in, week out, snow, sun. So the people are there all over society. But I think, again, it's that divide between economic development and everything else that people do and most people look at that and think oh that's not something I do or I organise and so it's about again bringing those two worlds together. Hazel? When I was in Hartlepool actually that didn't exist to the same extent and the locally trusted organisation which had done a lot of work with the young people to rather than teaching them how to write budgets and to do minutes for meetings teaching them how to have conversations with people how not to storm out of meetings or how to organise yourself to turn up to the meeting in the first place. And probably the parts of the country, like you're saying, the people that need this the most, those skills aren't a given. On that, I can testify to the fact that it takes a longer time for communities to develop. I think inclusive growth is ultimately about overcoming barriers. In our area, some of the things we've considered a barrier, like an empty shop, can be used as an opportunity. So now we have businesses which most of their income is from online, they're occupying spaces because it's cheap. If you can overcome the barriers um, in terms of ensuring that the fundamental stuff is there and the financial stuff that is really restrictive, then you can start focusing on rebuilding but what might be done in a year by a developer will take some time when it's done by a community, but there is some intrinsic value there that is created in that process. That was a fantastic conversation. There are so many different uh, dimensions to the challenge of, of creating inclusive growth that we could almost run a, a, on a podcast on any one of them. We're back again probably in a month to six weeks' time. We've got some fantastic new essays coming out over coming months, including... Uh, one on sport and community, something that's a completely different subject, but equally important, as, as Joe said. Also really excited to have David Boyle rejoining us in the essay series. He's about to start work on an essay on democracy and legitimacy. And if that doesn't get you excited, nothing will. Thanks very, very much to all of you for participating and look forward to the next podcast in about six weeks' time. That was the roundtable discussion of my essay, Building Wealth. We heard in that discussion that similar problems are plaguing communities throughout the UK, from Morecambe to Watchit, even though their history and their relationship to industry might be very different. Up and down the UK, people are suffering because of low income, poor job prospects and a sense that there are few opportunities. How do we change this? There are three takeaways. One, we have to believe that people, given proper resources like money and frameworks, are capable of creating healthier economies. As Jess says, if we want to change agency and control, we're going to have to start listening closer than we are now. Two, this will take time. But there's inherent value in the process, like Dan says. 
the process builds capacity in the community, a kind of wealth that cannot easily be extracted. Three, through this process, we can start to change the definition of the economy from something that's the preserve of elites to something that is by us and for us. That sense of ownership over the system is the only way to challenge the sense of disempowerment facing many people and places today. Don't forget, if you'd like to read the whole of my essay, Building Wealth, you can find a mobile-friendly digital version at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.